Good morning. How are you today? Good, good. Great to be with you today. Hey, join me in thanking our worship team one more time for what they do for us every single Sunday. They do a great, great job. You know, my grandfather is the one for whom I was named. He was Mac McLean, Hugh McLean actually, but went by Mac. And when I came along, my middle name is McLean, and so they called me Little Mac. And that was, he was Big Mac, I was Little Mac. And just to kind of give you the picture, my grandfather was five foot five in his cowboy boots, but he was always Big Mac and I was Little Mac. And uh, Big Mac was a strong personality, especially in his younger years. The story goes that he was a kind of a, a very competitive guy. I, I believe he graduated high school, but he was a mechanical savant. He could fix anything. There were always engines around his shop he was tinkering on. He could do anything, plumbing, electrical, carpentry. He just was one of those guys. And as the story goes, he was also an avid, avid outdoorsman, hunter and fisherman early in his, year, early in his life. He was not averse to maybe stopping on the way back in from the field and having a good time before he got home on Sunday night. It was, it was really a strict disciplinarian for my mom. But when my brothers and I came along, so the story goes, we saw a completely different side of Big Mac. Big Mac, my mom said her whole life she saw him cry two times. Once on the day that I was born, and then another time when I was three years old, and I stepped on the hot grate of a furnace in the floor, and my grandfather cried for only the second time my mom had ever seen him cry. But my brothers and I knew a very tender-hearted, kind-hearted man who honestly had trouble disciplining my brothers and me. When we would go to Beaumont and visit, especially in the summer when our parents were locked away in Houston, my grandfather never, ever really disciplined us. He always kind of had a pipe dangling out of the corner of his mouth. And when he would get really frustrated with us, you would see the pipe kind of jerk up like that because he was gritting his teeth. But if he, if he was really coming down hard on us, he would say the following. He would kind of slowly remove the pipe from his mouth. And he would say, hey, bub, you better straighten up and fly right. And he, he had such a commanding presence, we were kind of like, yes, sir. Well, this morning, as we continue this series, Tough Love, I want to borrow Big Mac's charge and actually tweak it just a little bit. When you think about love, relationships, and I mean really loving somebody over the long haul, the reality is you are going to engage in conflict. There will be conflict in a loving relationship over time. It's just going to happen. How many of you are married for more than... 15 minutes, let me see a show of hands, then you know love relationships have conflict attached to them. And so in the words of Big Mac this morning, I want to suggest to you that the biblical message of conflict is to straighten up and fight right. Matter of fact, tell your neighbor right now with passion and enthusiasm, fight right. Now, some of you may have already gotten a little head start on this this morning. It's funny, especially for families on Sunday mornings, how prone we are to disagreements on the way to church. Am I the only one that's ever experienced that? I mean, you know, when you're driving to church and, and maybe dad is driving or maybe mom and you're, and you're like, if I have to stop this car, so help me, I will take you out and make another one that looks just like you. Don't make me do this. And then we get into the parking lot at church and I'm, like, I'm not kidding. Stop it right now. Hello. Hello. Yes. Brethren, sisterin, yes, it is so good to be in the house of the Lord. If I had to say one more word to you, 
It just kind of happens on Sundays, doesn't it? You know, I think conflict just kind of happens in relationships. This is part of who we are as human beings. We're going to have those moments. Sometimes we're going to go through seasons where we're not on the same page. And it doesn't have to be husband-wife. It can also be parent-child. It can be friend-to-friend, co-worker-to-co-worker. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the bottom line, is that conflict is inevitable. But it is also resolvable. As a matter of fact, in the book of James, chapter 4, the Bible says that we can actually avoid a lot of conflict. If we would just kind of really, truly step back, we could avoid a huge number of the conflicts that afflict us. Check this out. James chapter 4. This is a, I love the book of James especially. The entire Bible is relevant, but James is so practical. Check this out. The Bible says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? I mean, if you're a person who knows conflict a lot, what is it that causes these quarrels and these conflicts? Number one, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Hey, let me, let me tell you something fun to do right now. Look at your neighbor and tell them it's a you problem. Now, I want you to notice that was a two-way street. Some of you were kind of like, you, were, you maybe you had that conflict on the car on the way to church. Saying, it's a you problem. Well, a lot of our conflicts are a me problem. It's what's going on within me. And just real quickly, can I, can I just give you maybe five things to be aware of, just to kind of put on your relational radar screen in order to avoid a lot of conflict. The, the first evil desire that the Bible talks about here, I think we could say is envy. Envy is an evil desire. We, we want something that somebody else has that is not ours. And, and at first blush, you might think, well, Mac, I, I don't envy i don't covet people's things but check this out how many of you are the oldest child in your family of origin let me see a show of hands okay i'm the oldest in my family i've got two twin brothers that are two and a half years younger than me how many of us older siblings or maybe the oldest can attest to the reality that from child one to child two things change i mean things change because the things that our parents got kind of amped up and were so strict about on child number one, somehow on child number two, it's not that big a deal. You know, the, the, child, the parent would say to the child number one, never, ever smoke a cigarette. And maybe by the time child number two came along, it was like, please don't smoke in the living room. Con- I mean, maybe your curfew, curfews change from kid to kid, don't they? Child number one, you will be home at 10 o'clock. Child number two, you know what, as long as you're home by midnight, I'm fine, don't worry about it. And as the older child in that situation, what is the one thing we say? It's not fair. It's not fair. Every older child that has ever drawn breath has said to her parents or his parents, it's not fair. Or we've thought about that before in maybe another situation. It's not fair. And so what we're doing in it's not fair is envying an advantage that somebody else has, or maybe a perceived advantage. 
We envy in weird ways sometimes. It's like we envy, you know, somebody else's house or their car. And so rather than say, golly, I want that car, what we say is, who would spend that much money on a house? Can you believe that? Or we say something like this, man, that's an incredible car you've got. Yeah, but are they really happy? That's envy. Just bald, naked envy out in front of God and everybody. Another thing that kind of is at war within us is greed. Greed. When, when, when I get greedy or you get greedy, we, we tend to go into combat mode, conflict. And we're talking here about financial greed, monetary, material greed. And that creates a lot of problems, I think, especially in the marketplace. Now, nobody says, I want more money. Nobody says that out loud. But what they say is, it's a way of keeping score. I'm, I'm keeping score monetarily. No, you're just greedy. And that greed will create conflict. Other things just to kind of be aware of. There's envy. There's greed. How about entitlement? Entitlement. I deserve better. Have you ever, I mean, let's just be honest. We've all thought it. I deserve better. No, you don't deserve better. You don't deserve better. You don't deserve worse. You're, in, you're worthy of better because you're created in the image of God. But that doesn't mean you deserve it. And there's a huge difference between worthiness and entitlement. Entitlement. Man, parents, whatever we can do to correct the corruption of entitlement in our kids, we've done them a huge favor. We do them a huge favor. Entitlement. How about pride? Pride. Man, I found this out as a parent. My pride was getting in the way of my parenting, especially when our kids were younger. I've told you all before, we've got two very strong-willed kids. What are the odds? But... We've got these two strong-willed kids, and it manifests itself in different ways. But with Emily, our firstborn, I remember thinking when she would kind of start kind of digging her little three-year-old heels in and, like, not obeying and not doing what Daddy said or what Mama said, my thought subconsciously was, I am not losing to something that small. I will win this. And as long as I escalated the intensity or maybe the volume, I was wrong. I wasn't going to win that. The only way I was going to win that was by leaving the bar where we said it was originally and just telling Emily, Emily, I love you, honey, but you're not going to talk to mom that way. I love you. You're great, but you're not talking to her. I chose her. You just showed up. <laughs> so when you yelled at mom, the conversation was over. You can go to your room. <laughs> no, I said, you can go to your room. And because I was bigger, I could carry her to her room. And I did on multiple occasions. And multiple occasions. I had to stand at the door and hold it. So that's so mean. No, I loved her. But I was not going to win that conversation for her sake, by the way, as long as it was about me and my pride. But, you know, if you look at all of these, quote-unquote, evil desires at war within us, I think they really are rooted in another evil desire. 
fear. Fear. If you ever deal with somebody who's prideful, you can just know ultimately that's a scared little boy. That's a scared little girl. It's like the, the Gila monster lizard who fans out its gills and, and its neck. They're not any bigger or stronger than they were before, but they, they flare that out to try to scare off predators. That's, that's what's going on when, when you've got somebody who's prideful, somebody who's greedy, somebody who's envious, somebody who has let their anger and their rage take over. They're, they're scared. And when you understand that, then you can kind of de-escalate and go, oh, just to yourself go, oh, he's scared. Okay, now, you don't have to say that out loud because you might get punched in the nose, but you just need to understand that's the reality of it. And if we understand these quarrel and conflict triggers, then we will eliminate conservatively 80% of the quarrels and the conflicts that we have. But it might surprise you to know that the Bible says conflict can be a great relationship tool. Conflict or disagreements, quarrels, if you will, can be something that recalibrates, that resets the relationship. How many of you know that sometimes the relationship needs a reset? Can I see a show of hands? Somebody. I mean, sometimes, sometimes you know, like I can, if my phone kind of freezes up, you know, and I'm like, man, it's not working. Turn it off. Turn it back on. Oh, there it is. But sometimes you do the off-on, and the problem's still not resolved, and you have to do the hard reset. You have to do the hard reset relationally sometimes. Sometimes in community, in relationship, husband-wife, parent-child, friend-to-friend, neighbor-to-neighbor, co-worker to co-worker. You have to resolve the conflict. And in Ephesians chapter 4, God shows us exactly how to resolve conflict. How to make this a win. God is ultimately engaged in conflict resolution. God is ultimately the one who shows us how to fight right. How to make it right. And the end goal is always reconciliation, that that we would be reconciled and the relationship would be restored. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is what God says. I love this. Verse 26, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Does anybody else hear Elton John singing when you read that out loud? Don't let the sun... Anyway, he sounds just like that. Um, Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. You need to write this down. Anger is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. A lot of people think, if it weren't a sin, I would be really mad right now. Guess what? You're already there, cuz. Anger is like fire. It's like money. It's neutral. It is neither good nor bad. It is neutral. What we do with it determines whether it's negative or positive, whether it helps or it hurts. Do not sin by letting anger control you. You know what the Bible's saying there? Regulate 
your rage. Regulate your rage. Regulate it and keep it in check. Where we get sideways is when we give full vent to our anger. And we just let it fly. I told you I grew up with brothers. Growing up with brothers, you can say or do whatever you want to pretty much. I mean, if it comes into your head, it can come out your mouth. and You want to go play? Yeah, cool. It was interesting. (laughs) Julie, my wife, grew up with sisters. And she did not resolve conflict this way. She did not appreciate my conflict resolution skills when I became her husband. And I learned very quickly that I had to regulate my rage. Because boys, I remember one time in particular, my mom, my brother Pat and I got into a fight. And this wasn't like a little sibling bickering going on. I mean, this was like we were both, I mean, at an 11 of mad. And my mom was standing between us. I think I was about 14, so Pat would have been about 12 years old. And, and, and we were, I mean, we were like, oh, well kill you soon she leaves the room and she was standing between us and all of a sudden my brother pat called me a name in his rage that i will not repeat in church and my mother did this she just green lighted me and so i like to think in that situation i was god's tool to help pat regulate his rage now, my mom pulled, I mean, Pat's fine. He, he didn't walk with a limp anymore, and that, that passed. But, you know, I think, I think part of this need, means that we, we need to own the fact that, can you just be honest, that sometimes rage is fun. I mean, sometimes we like to stay mad. It's like if you get, if you get a really good mad on, <laughs> and you don't want to let it go. And then you, you, you just start spewing whatever comes into your mind. But you forget what Jesus said, that the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. And so if I'm not regulating my rage, that's not the other person's problem. That's ultimately something that's going on inside of me. And it means that I haven't fully appropriated, I haven't fully owned the love of God. That I haven't fully owned the fact that God loves me perfectly and unconditionally. And that he calls me to do the same. So the first thing you do is you regulate your rage. But Paul's not done there. He moves on in verse 29. This this is rough. (laughs) This is very rough. Don't say don't. don't. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Yes, we regulate the rage, but also watch your words. Watch your words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Wrong. Words absolutely will harm. I would venture that anybody in this room over the age of 25 can go back to a moment in your childhood where your mother or your father said something to you that you still recall. Where where something still causes you to doubt yourself or to remember a wound. That's 
not because they were necessarily bad people, it's because they were people. But living in the power of the gospel, living in relationship with Christ, means that His power is at work within us. And we choose to allow His power to watch our words. To remember, you know what? This relationship is a gift from God. This this person is a gift. So, as such, I'm going to treat her. I'm going to treat him as a gift. That's kind of funny, isn't it? Because when you're mad, you don't think gift. You're going, I mean, I remember asking my mom and dad, why did you all have them, thinking about my younger brothers? I mean, like, weren't we happy? Now? Man, my brothers are two of the greatest gifts I have on this planet. And they always were, but it was about changing my perspective to see that relationship as a gift from God. As a gift from God that God wants to use me to encourage, to lift them up. Don't use foul or abusive language. Watch your words. Verse 31. Get rid. Tell your neighbor real quick. With passion and enthusiasm, get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander. Slander. You know, slander is not the same as libel. Libel is where you tell something about somebody that's not true in order to damage them. Slander is when you tell something about somebody that is true in order to damage them. That's slander. Slander. Get rid. All of those things are focused on revenge. All of those things are focused on Tearing down another person. All of those things are about getting even. And that's not our job. The gospel, the message and the good news of Jesus Christ is that God gets even with evil. God says, vengeance is mine. He will repay. It's not my job to repay. God will repay. He'll take care of it. Everything will be made right. It won't be right now. Probably won't be this afternoon. But eventually in God's perfect timing, everything will be made right. He'll take care of it. So eliminate malice. Just just eliminate ill will toward another person. It doesn't benefit anyone. For the record, malice doesn't harm anyone. If you're malicious, if you harbor ill will toward another human being, you've done this much to that human being. Zero. Nothing. (laughs) That guy's a jerk. And that guy's over there ordering ice cream. Just chilling out. You You haven't damaged another person. You've damaged yourself. You've damaged your relationship with Christ. So eliminate malice. Just get rid of it. 
I wonder this morning, how many of you are currently engaged in a conflict, in a relationship problem of some sort? Just raise your hand. I am. I've got my hand up. I'm not happy about it. I mean, Julie and I are cool, but it's somebody else. How many of you right now, you, you've got a conflict going on? The first step towards resolution is to eliminate malice. You decide between you and God, I'm not wishing or harboring any ill will on that other person. I'm not. So you eliminate malice. But you know, that's hard to do. That's, that's really, really tough. But because we have this inner drive, this inner need for justice, don't we? We've got this need for things to be set right. We've got this need for the truth to come out. People need to know that he's a jerk. But Jesus doesn't have that need. Jesus doesn't have that drive to hold people up as an example of jerkness. Jesus doesn't have any desire at all but to reconcile relationships. And it's this inherent drive towards reconciliation in the character of Christ that Paul kind of concludes this teaching on conflict resolution. Paul writes this, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. You see, the bottom line is that we copy Christ. Copy Jesus. Now, that's what it means to follow Jesus. To be a disciple means that you follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means that you live like Him. You bear out the image of God you were created to represent. And you, you just copy Jesus. You just go, okay, we're in a fight. It's not fun. But I'm going to copy Jesus. And so to copy Jesus, I'm going to put your needs ahead of my needs. I'm going to worry about the things you worry about. And I'm going to trust that you're going to do the same. Now, they won't always. But that's not a you problem. To fight right means that you choose to copy Christ. You choose to do what He would do. And so you consider the other person more than yourself. Because ultimately, that's what Jesus did. If you'll remember, just before Jesus went to the cross, He prayed a prayer, and He asked God if He could avoid it. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Meaning, if there's any way around the cross, if there's any other alternative, let's find it right now. 
And I love that the Bible includes that prayer of Jesus. I, I can't tell you how encouraging that is to me. To see Jesus pray a prayer where basically he says, I don't feel like it. I, I don't want to do this. He knew what was in store for him. He knew what was at the end of that path. He knew the physical pain, but I think the thing that worried Christ the most was the broken relationship that was in front of him. Because when Jesus went to the cross in your place and in my place, the Bible says that he became sin. And when Jesus became sin, that meant that God the Son was no longer intimately associated and related to God the Father. Because God the Father is holy and righteous. And he could have nothing to do with sin, which in that moment Jesus became yours and mine. And that's why Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he knew that in that moment the relationship was ruptured. But he got up. He rose from the dead. And on that third day that he rose from the dead, he did so with the promise of reconciliation, of new life for anyone who would receive it. For anyone. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, because Jesus chose to fight right, our relationship with him is restored when we respond to his grace initiative. That's the thing that makes grace amazing is that Jesus did that for you and for me before we even knew we had a problem. Before we even knew that we needed forgiveness or salvation, Jesus offered it by dying on the cross and rising again. And the Bible says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and me for this life that he allows us to live out as we follow him. So if that power raised Jesus from the dead... That power can reconcile the relationship that you're in right now that is in conflict. That power is always available to those who follow him, to those who copy Christ. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you're in a conflict, if you're not in a conflict. But I do know that at some point... You will be. But I also know that Jesus Christ invites you into a relationship with himself. It's what we celebrated in baptism right here earlier. The fact that the conflict between a person and God is resolved in Christ. That for each person who is baptized, because they have committed their lives to Christ, they have appropriated His grace, His forgiveness, and owned it personally, responded to it. And now they live in relationship with Him. Not perfectly, not because they've got it all figured out, but they're on the way. If you're here today and you've never responded to God's grace initiative as a church, we want to give you the opportunity to do just that. To resolve this conflict in Christ. 
I want to ask you if you will just bow your heads for a moment, please. And in this moment, I want to ask everybody to be praying. If you are a follower of Christ, then I want you to be praying for the people around you. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, then I want to invite you, as God leads, to follow Him. To pray a prayer of beginning, of commitment to a relationship with Christ. Just right where you're sitting, you pray silently in your own words, something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. And I want this relationship with you. So Jesus, right now, I give you my life. I confess my sin and I claim your forgiveness. That you accomplished through the cross and in your resurrection. And I pray this prayer once and for all in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for another moment. But in this sacred moment, if that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, then I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you, if you would, raise your hand. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you would just raise your hand up high over your head for a moment. Because this is a moment that needs to be marked. So I want you to keep your hand up for your sake. So that you can know that you know that you know this is real. This is God doing this. And you mark that moment in your life once and for all because it's the most important moment you will ever know. As a church, we never experience a moment more important than this. And so as a church, we celebrate God's doing that in your life. We celebrate your responding to His initiative. And our family tradition, as you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.